Welcome to Show Cause, the official podcast of the University of Memphis School of Law. I'm Ryan Jones, the Director of Communications at the Law School, and I'll be your host for this podcast as we attempt to examine and explain some of the legal and cultural issues at play in the world today. Georgia. Hi, this is Willie Nelson. Alcohol prohibition didn't work in the 1920s, and marijuana prohibition isn't working today. It's time we stopped arresting responsible marijuana smokers. It's the fair thing to do. I inhaled uh, frequently. That was, uh, that, was, that was the point. Now, one thing I don't like about America is we got real bad drug policy. We got horrible drug policy. We got people in jail for getting high. Marijuana is terrible. It's a gateway drug. And everybody knows that it leads to other stuff. Yeah, mostly junk food. (laughs) Marijuana and cannabis-based products are everywhere these days. Even in states like Tennessee, where marijuana and THC-derived products are still recreationally and medically illegal, weed still makes waves, both legislatively and from a consumer perspective. Here in Tennessee, the most recent to-do about marijuana centers around Delta 8, which is sort of the gentler and more importantly, legal cousin of your traditional marijuana. Technically, Delta-8 is the psychoactive compound THC that's derived from hemp instead of marijuana. Hemp and marijuana are both types of cannabis plants, but marijuana produces a different THC compound and importantly is federally illegal. But hemp is not, thanks to the passing of the 2018 Farm Bill. That bill stated that hemp could be grown as long as it contained less than 0.3% THC. But entrepreneurial citizens soon discovered that the exact language actually defined it as THC specifically as Delta 9 THC, which is derived from the marijuana plant, not the Delta 8 THC from cannabis, hemp. And thus, the Delta 8 boom began unregulated and unfettered across the country. It takes a bit more to achieve the same effects as traditional marijuana THC, but that didn't deter many folks on either the sales or the consumer end of things. Here in Tennessee, the market boomed just like everywhere else, but it took until just a few months ago for the laws to catch up. Governor Bill Lee recently signed a law that says hemp-derived products like Delta 8 are not allowed to be sold to anyone under 21 in Tennessee and are now taxed and regulated for the first time here in the state. We're also quickly being surrounded by other southern states that are legalizing marijuana, both medically and recreationally, at a fast pace. Mississippi just legalized medical marijuana, and Arkansas did the same several years ago, and just narrowly mislegalizing it recreationally on the last ballot. Our nearby northern neighbors Missouri and Illinois both have legalized recreational and medical weed recently, and even Alabama has passed a law recently that legalized it medically. More and more states across the country are legalizing the once scary drug, getting huge sums of money in the form of taxes and fees at the same time. Simultaneously, more than 14 states have either banned weed-adjacent things like Delta-8, so it's understandably a very confusing time for anyone looking at the larger state of affairs in the cannabis industry. In an effort to understand the market and the legal landscape a little bit better, I've invited Stephen Galoob, a professor of law at the University of Tulsa College of Law, onto the show today to go into a bit more depth about how states are regulating the marijuana market and how the landscape's changing across the country at both the state and federal levels. From the effects of criminal record expungement in states like Minnesota to the jobs created by the marijuana industry across the board, we touch on a lot of interesting points across the weed spectrum. So sit back, relax, enjoy the show. This is Show Cause. All right. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Show Cause. We've got a special guest with us today to talk about an interesting topic uh, here in Tennessee and across the country. I've got... uh, Professor Stephen Galoob with us. He's a professor of law at the University of Tulsa College of Law. 
Uh, Stephen, thanks for joining us to talk a little bit about um, cannabis regulation uh, across the country, states, federally, from a business and regulation standpoint, and uh, everything else here, there, and everywhere. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Great. Um, for our listeners, uh, really the impetus for this episode was uh, recently here in Tennessee, um, our state legislature passed a new law and it was signed by the governor a couple of weeks ago that uh, basically said hemp derived products like Delta eight are not, are uh, not allowed to be sold to anyone under 21 here in Tennessee. And the, those businesses are now taxed and regulated for the first time here. And um, as most listeners know, it's the uh, marijuana THC based products are still illegal medicinally and recreationally here in Tennessee. But um, this Delta eight legislation is uh, a first step that Tennessee has made in quite some time on the cannabis front. So it, it got me thinking, you know, how is this playing out in other States across the country? Um, and I wanted to talk with uh, professor Galoob a little bit about that. So um, I think uh, an interesting uh, an interesting state that also recently passed the marijuana legislation was Minnesota. And I think it ties in a little bit about the larger regulation and taxation stuff uh, and infrastructure that gives an interesting look at what some other states are doing. Um, they uh, signed legislation allowing can, uh, recreational marijuana sales, and they have an office of cannabis, cannabis management. Um, they have a lot of infrastructure in place, as well as some expungement opportunities for those with prior marijuana convictions. So I thought we'd start there a little bit about the the interesting tie-in with expungement and how they're also regulating their uh, marijuana uh, marijuana sales. So can you tell us a little bit about the expungement side, how that might work? Is that a common thing to happen when legislation is passed uh, on a state-by-state -state basis? It's a sensible thing to happen. Uh, it's not, it's unfortunately not that common. Um, you know, we've, for 90 years, we've been engaged in a pretty active prohibition of cannabis. And for the last maybe 50 or 60 years, we've really ramped up uh, criminal prohibitions on cannabis, not only sort of for their own sake, but as a way to wage the war on drugs. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is how you transition away as a country, as a state, uh, as a locality, as a police force from a prohibitionary regime. There, it seems like that's the direction we're going. Tennessee might be a little behind the curve. Oklahoma might be a little ahead of the curve. Although I think if things were left up to our legislature, we would be way behind where you guys are. Well, uh, the, you know, yeah. Uh, so changing the criminal laws and the criminal law enforcement is one aspect of transitioning from prohibition, but it's not the only aspect. And it's maybe not even the most important aspect for the public health, um, the public health implications of, mm -hmm. of cannabis. Really, I, it's we're at a very exciting moment now where there's an industry that will be pretty significant. I mean, by some estimates, you know, maybe 2% of GDP, 
that is essentially nascent. Um, and the metaphor a lot of people use is the Wild West. But mm -hmm. we remember that a lot of people went west because they were seeking their fortune or because they were they were looking for new opportunities. And I think that actually describes a lot of um, the activity that's going on in the cannabis space right now. I mean, I think that's a good terminology for here in Tennessee. Um, you know, I believe it, the 2018 Farm Bill broadly legalized hemp-derived cannabinoid products. And they've been, uh, Delta 8 specifically, which I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically, you know, one molecule off the traditional THC cannabinoid product. Um, that Delta 8 products have been for sale across Tennessee pretty much for anyone since that farm bill passed um, businesses opening up left and right. It, I, as far as I'm aware, no real oversight for the sale or production of those products. And then all of a sudden recently it's Tennessee legislatures, I think realized they could make a lot of money off of the taxation of it. Um, so I think, like you said, a lot of people wild West analogy saw their opportunity to make some, some money, some entrepreneurial people, went out and put their, you know, their storefronts up. And it was just been several, several years have gone by before the legislature caught up to that. Um, what are you seeing in, um, in other States that have, uh, have legalized this in some form or fashion and from a business standpoint, um, how are, how are local, I don't want to say mom and pop, but, smaller production facilities, smaller dispensaries, how are states ensuring that that they can compete in the business environment with larger corporate inter entities that that enter the arena? Are are our states doing anything to to regulate that marketplace? It's really interesting. That's a really interesting question because I think it gets at the oddity of the space that we're in right now. My state the state I live in, Oklahoma, is probably the most deregulated on the production side of any state in the country. Um, we passed legislation in 2018 through a state referendum, a popular referendum, a state question that created at the time what was clearly the most um, avant-garde mm -hmm. uh, regime regarding the production of, we call it medical marijuana here, but I actually tend to use the term cannabis, um, except because we call it medical marijuana, I feel like I have to use that term. Since okay. The, the, the interesting part of all of cannabis, and I, I teach a cannabis law course at the University of Tulsa, so we spend a lot of time on this, okay. is that cannabis is still prohibited at the federal level. And it's not just prohibited through criminal law, but through all kinds of regulations, um, there are prohibitions on research, there are prohibitions on banking, there are prohibitions on legally advising clients that exist throughout the various entities of the federal government. And one of the challenges to business is that it's really difficult to get access to capital and the way, or just regular business insurance and the way that normal businesses deal with things. It's difficult um, to, if you start a business and it um, turns out not to be profitable, 
to get bankruptcy protection in the way that we uh, we provide to businesses. It's difficult to write off, it's impossible at the federal level to write off business expenses for a cannabis business in the way that we normally allow businesses to write off their, to deduct their business expenses from their, um, from their tax liability. And it's also really difficult to get access to banking. Right. And so a lot of the federal legislation that is being proposed or being advocated for and really has been on the agenda for 10 to 15 years in some cases is designed to provide cannabis businesses with the same access to the sort of legal and regulatory tools of business that other kinds of businesses have. So in one sense, there aren't really that many big businesses um, in a place like Oklahoma Mm -hmm. Uh, and places that limit the amount of suppliers that you do see co uh, consolidation among the uh, the producers. But um, even there, you don't have cross-state um, firms that are operating in, in, across multiple jurisdictions. Or if you do, you have very careful, there, there's not, uh, in the way we would normally think of in, in corporate law, there's not like a firm that's operating across multiple states at the same time. Mm -hmm. In fact, many states prohibit out-of-state firms from participating in their marketplaces. So, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I can speak you know, firsthand on the situation in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is pretty much all mom and pop shops. Okay. And um, there are real advantages to that. And there are real disadvantages disadvantages to that and we could we can calculate those advantages both from a business perspective and from a public health perspective from a public health perspective the biggest threat to the creation of the cannabis industry is essentially creating a philip morris mm -hmm. or an anheuser bush of cannabis mm -hmm. these are large concerns that have very sophisticated marketing budgets and that identify what you might call problem users and extract as much profit from those users as is possible. Mm -hmm. And because there's a kind of drag on the consolidation of cannabis concerns, there isn't really a nationally recognized set of brands in the cannabis space like there would be in like the beer space. Right the cigarette space or even the cigar space or something like that. Right. It's essentially all microbrews. Interesting. Um, across the, the, the country or is just there in Oklahoma? No, I, I would say this is, this is true across the country because so cannabis is like I said before, still prohibited at the federal, at the federal level. Mm -hmm. and, and many States have gone very far towards um, relaxing those prohibitions, mm -hmm. but the federal prohibitions still apply. And there are some legal mechanisms that the federal government and the Department of Justice and, and Congress have done to, I would say, call off the dogs a little bit in terms mm -hmm. of law enforcement activity related to cannabis businesses. But there are many prohibitions that 
are that still serve as like a, a massive parachute mm-hmm. in terms of inhibiting the the velocity of um, the acceleration of, of cannabis businesses. So you you kind of touched on a couple of things that that caught my interest, and one of them had to do with you talked about you know uh, entities operating across state lines and and, and some federal prohibitions still applying um, in this business space, and so. And then also you talked about the uh, the lack of a you know for better lack of better explanation of an Anheuser Busch of the marijuana industry, cannabis industry. So that leads me into the this topic of there are certain there are some states right now. I think we'll use California as as the example. Um, I've read recently that they they tax their cannabis industry, their producers, their dispensaries at, at such a high rate. Um, about 37% cannabis tax, which leaves almost no profit margin for a lot of those small businesses that you mentioned. Um, and a couple of things there. Um, I, I wonder, is there a concern that if you have, is, does that leave room for a massive corporate entity to come in that has more financial backing, more resources, the ability to have more product sold at a, a smaller profit margin on a store by store basis, but it is able to absorb more losses and in turn la- outlast uh, the that high tax and, and still make a profit. Also, that high tax rate seems to be um, creating. I, I'm I'm not using the right terminology here, but is that it, it seems to be creating a little bit of a uh, a black market industry between. Um, legal production and dispensary facilities in turn, like California businesses have a massive stockpile of cannabis product that they can no longer sell because they're going out of business due to that high tax rate. They're selling it to, um, or are they selling it to entities in nearby or other States that um, have not had as long to get their product inventory up to speed? Um, I guess on the surface level, that seems like it would be illegal um, but I, I believe that there have been some murmurings that the Biden administration is considering allowing that trading of, of marijuana between states, uh, allowing that excess product to be sold to parts of the country that are newly legal, um, from entities in California and others that have gone out of business. Is that a thing? Is that likely to happen? Um, and, you know, does that, does that black market exist? And, if so, is it is it just ignored for the greater good of the industry, or are there efforts to you know br- reel that in? Well, I think there's a reason why so many movies about mobsters involve <laughs> stealing and reselling cigarettes. Yeah, right. So cigarettes yeah. are a commodity; they're highly addictive, and they're also highly taxed. Right. And so when you tax something at a very high level, you create, you know, arbitrage opportunities for um, people who are not wanting to comply with the normal taxing regime. Right. Uh, and this is, I think, a challenge for states that want to see cannabis as entirely a profit center and not really pay attention to taking steps to develop 
an industry and mm-hmm. uh, might or might not be hospitable to kind of small business entrepreneurs. I, I think in 15 years, the kind of situation that you're talking about, where you essentially have trading and cannabis across, you know, and distribution of cannabis across state lines is probably more likely than not to be realized. But there are a whole host of barriers to the development of the industry that need to be addressed before you get to that point. Right. I mean, the first off being it's federally still federally prohibited, right? I mean, that precludes everything else. And and the the barriers to federal prohibition are that we, I mean, at least the FDA has said that we don't have good research about, you know, sort of peer-reviewed scientific research about the health and safety effects of cannabis that would allow um, uh, cannabis and THC to be either rescheduled or descheduled off of the federal drug registry. Mm-hmm. The federal drug schedule. The problem is that the feds also control <laughs> the supply of legally available um, cannabis for research. Right. It's at Mississippi State University. Oh yeah. And yeah. It's um, there's a kind of bureaucratic story there about how it got there and about why you might inhibit the availability of that product in order to do research. And so in some states like uh, Colorado and Oklahoma and California, um, there are initiatives that would allow their cannabis to be, uh, cannabis in those states to be used for research without researchers violating state law. The problem is those researchers might be violating federal law. And because so much of this funding comes from the you know federal funding sources they they probably couldn't so much of scientific funding comes from federal funding sources they probably couldn't you know conduct that funding in the normal ways that we do science you know i wasn't I, I, gonna... yeah i was gonna say that the the challenge is that there are so many interlocking pieces here that when you examine the challenges in one aspect mm-hmm. of the system new challenges that you hadn't even really thought of tend to emerge. Well, that's, I was, that's funny. Cause I was, that's where I was going to go with this next thought. I, I didn't plan on bringing this up because I didn't know if you could speak to it or if it was outside of your, your ballywick for lack of a better word, but like uh, unintended consequences from the federal level. I, I read in the lead up to this, I read a piece about how in Minnesota, a couple of days after the the law passed allowing recreational use of marijuana uh, last month that the federal bureau of alcohol tobacco and firearms sent out a little friendly reminder to minnesota residents that says basically when you take advantage of your newfound right to smoke marijuana there you are giving up your second amendment rights because the federal gun control act uh, that was passed back in the 60s, uh, prohibits any user of a controlled substance in America from shipping, receiving, possessing firearms, ammunition of any kind. And since marijuana at the federal level is still considered a controlled substance, their statement said that the rule applies to both medical and recreational users of the drug, which is 
I think an aspect that I don't know that a lot of people have thought about, um, especially with Second Amendment stuff being so contentious across the country now, that was the first time that I'd seen a federal agency come out and say, okay, uh, your state has done this unintended consequence. You may no longer be allowed to, you know, have your, your, your rights to your firearms anymore. I don't have you, had you heard about that or. Yeah, that, that's unsurprising. I, so my main teaching interests is in criminal law and criminal procedure. And uh, I've, I have used a lot of cases like those kinds of firearm cases in my criminal procedure class to uh, as assessments for my students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's unsurprising that the ATF would, uh, would say that it's not super clear that they can actually, well, the ATF doesn't prosecute cases so right, right. and offer their interpretation of the law, but ultimately it's up to the department of justice to, right. to, uh, to prosecute those cases federally. And there are, there are memorandum. Uh, there's a very high-profile memorandum crafted in the Obama administration that was rescinded under the Trump administration and now has been sort of <laughs> is, is being re-articulated through the mechanisms of the Department of Justice. But the memorandum is called the Cole Memorandum. And it's after the person who's the Deputy Attorney General, James Cole, who is really, if if there's anybody you can point to as the person who enabled the contemporary cannabis industry, it's probably this guy, James Cole. Okay. And the Cole Memorandum says, if a state has a medical marijuana industry or you know, medical marijuana reg- regulations, then prosecutors, federal prosecutors should essentially deprioritize federal drug charges that are uh, related to... Um, activity within that industry, uh, except if it's like, you know, serious, uh, except if it falls within a number of um, exceptions, um, some of which involve like serious cartel activity and things like that. Mm -hmm. Congress has also, since I think about 2015 or 2016, created an as an appropriations writer, um, uh, a a prohibition on the Department of Justice using um, appropriated funds to prosecute activity that is compliant with state cannabis activity. The Trump administration issued a signing statement saying that they did not believe that that restriction was consistent with the Constitution, but the Ninth Circuit in a very um, a sort of very high profile case in this space upheld, not only upheld, or in a couple of cases, not only upheld the sort of constitutionality of that restriction, of that uh, appropriations writer. It, it, I learned it as Rohrbacher Farr after the sponsors. It, it has a different name because it's okay. the same after the sponsors in each, uh, in each um, session. But because Dana Rohrbacher, who was famous for a lot of things, not just this, <laughs> but it has such an easy to remember name. I, I just remember it as Rohrbacher Farm. Um, but uh, not only does the DOJ, not only according to the Ninth Circuit, did the DOJ um, spending a writer um, pass legal muster, but unlike many 
uh, appropriate, uh, unlike many regulations and criminal law, if there's a there's sort of relief that's attached to it. So you're supposed to get your case dismissed if you can establish that this um, appropriations writer has been violated by the DOJ. So um, that is a Ninth Circuit case. It's not a Supreme Court case. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily the law in every circuit. I actually have been working on federal ca cannabis clemency cases. And I saw there was a recent case out of the Eighth Circuit saying, yeah, we don't really by that interpretation. <laughs> so that's still kind of an open question legally in terms of how you interpret that provision. But, you know, I mean, this is one of the things that makes this such an exciting field to be in. And also maybe for students, a frustrating class to take huh. is that there's an awful lot of legal uncertainty mm -hmm. about just like what the law actually is. Right. I mean, like you said, the uncertainty, it, it goes back, you know, kind of like the wild west that you were saying, um, you know, another, kind of random thing and aside would be and this goes back to some of the businesses that we were talking about there there seems to be also you know random ancillary businesses that have cropped up in the kind of gray areas of this marketplace and i i, I don't know if you can speak to this or anything but there's you know in the process of <laughs> The process of research in this pod. Maybe I shouldn't say this. this gives people. I was gonna say, what kind of research did you do yeah. for this? Well, <laughs> mostly online. Field work. <laughs> Field work. Like, well, I guess the opportunity exists, um, but I'm not turning in any invoices to the university for any got research it, on it. this. But the one thing I came across was an, an interesting little hodgepodge of uh, of businesses that I'll give you the specific example. So. I think people really have to jump through a lot of hoops to do this, but I think a lot of people probably are. There are, I'm not going to name the businesses, but it's a, a business that has a, has a website and it allows you to uh, look at a state like California, for example, has um, uh, recreational marijuana use. It just so happens to apparently also be one of the only states that you can apply for a recreational uh, or a medical marijuana card uh, and not be an in-state resident. Um, so, you, you know, Stephen Galoob from Tulsa, Oklahoma, goes through this website, puts you in touch with a doctor in California. I guess you have a – I didn't go through the process, but you have some sort of consultation. And then they have information on their website that then points you to, okay, now you're an out-of-state resident. You have a, Calif a valid California out-of-state resident medical marijuana card. Um, and then the, it points you to information in other states that say, okay, uh, you have a, you are a resident from another state that has a valid medical marijuana card. You can apply for a, basically like a, an out-of-state visitors permit for your medical marijuana card here in, let's say Arkansas, since it's the state that neighbors Tennessee right across the river here. And then you get your, you know, three months, six months, nine months. I can't remember how long it's valid for, but basically your your Arkansas medical marijuana card that is issued to you as a like a visitor's a visitor's pass based on your valid California medical card. Um, so it's this. I'm assuming they're basically these middlemen businesses. You know, they're not really doing anything. They're just they're connecting you, the user, to doctors networks providing you information for bureaucratic application processes and things like that but i don't really have a question there it was just in the process of looking at this i was just like wow 
there are a lot of little businesses that have that are really mining the gray areas of this for profit and um I don't know. Have you seen other things like that? Is that just is a totally unique thing? Um, it seems seems questionable, but yeah, I mean, in Oklahoma since 2018, there's been let's say a rapid increase in the amount of gardening, gardening, <laughs> um, you know, gardening shops, yeah. shops that are interested in hydroponic gardening. Uh-huh. So in Oklahoma, there's a um, there's I think I forgot exactly how many plants, but you can grow your, you can grow your own. Okay. And um, it's pretty easy to get a license to, there are no like background checks or um, there's not a limit to the number of licenses for mm-hmm. people who can cultivate at, at a enhanced level. Um, there was some talk about, I guess there was a, um, a, po- a state question that was on the ballot, I think in January, February of this year that would have tapped or would basically pause the number of licenses for those uh, for those who wanted to grow or or to distribute but that state question ultimately didn't pass so um yeah it's still pretty much uncapped yeah i mean the thing about any of this is that it kind of matters how much legal uncertainty you are comfortable with right you said that uh number of the people who might be listening to this are either law students or prospective law students the thing you should know is that many state character and fitness um, committees mm-hmm. take a dim view towards people who are participating in the cannabis space. Right, right, um, yeah. You know, in some states, and th- this is actually something that different state, you know, legal ethics committees have disagreed about, but participation as uh, an entrepreneur as maybe even like a license holder and uh, as a legal advisor um, might be in violation of uh, the rules of professional responsibility that prohibit the utilization of the lawyer's services in connection with a crime. That's interesting. In a state like Oklahoma where um, none of these things are actually criminally prohibited or there might not be criminally prohibited in Oklahoma, um, you can interpret the no facilitation of crime in a broad way to include federal crimes and effectively um, prohibit people who want to be in full compliance with the requirements of their law license or people who want to enter the bar mm-hmm. participating in this space. Now, I don't know. I mean, it depends on how much money is actually available, but there's a point at which there's enough money available that people are willing to take that risk. Right. The point is that um, we're not probably at that point yet. Okay. <laughs> so the people who are willing to participate in these kinds of industries are um, are taking significant risks. Right. So in Oklahoma, there are many law firms that advertise that they have a cannabis practice, practice mm-hmm. group. But if you actually interrogate what that means, a lot of times it just means help, helping in real estate acquisitions for cannabis firms. Right. They're, they're not really doing the kind of regulatory and advising work that you would expect out of a highly regulated industry. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine, you know, in 10 or 15 years, when maybe we've moved further away from prohibition than we are now, that this is the kind of job, this kind of, like 
heavily technical compliance job and an exciting growth industry that a lot of new law student graduates would be really appropriate for. And it's also, I mean, to be really frank, the kind of thing that ChatGPT is probably not going to, you know, replace. Right, right, right. And, and so one of the things that I'm really thinking about in terms of developing the cannabis law offerings that we have here is even though my interest is mostly in sort of cannabis and criminal law, like really bringing in a lot more about cannabis and banking law, because that's likely to be where my students are going to be, um, are, are going to be getting exposed to, um, to legal practice in this, in the cannabis space. No, that's really interesting. Cause I hadn't really thought about the potential for, you know, like you said, 10 or 15 years down the road, the potential for like a massive new sector of, of legal work at even, you know, large firms across the country. Um, and what, yeah, my, that, my and what that entails. That large firms will be among the last to adopt these mm-hmm. kinds of practice techniques because, because of the legal risk that is involved in them. Mm-hmm. But um, I think there are people who will make a lot of money offering relatively, you know, sort of compliance-based services and right. advising services yeah, the, to, to cannabis concerns. I mean, is it more, it's probably more traditional legal services. You just, they're just attached to, cannabis is just attached to those as well. I mean, you know establishing your business and the regulatory stuff that you go through and advising new businesses and things. Um, right. I mean, the, the, the federal, um, at the federal level, there's been an analog to the coal memorandum that I mentioned earlier, right. Which basically says that banking services are available. Don't violate. I wouldn't say available. They don't violate wire fraud and money laundering statutes. If, they are offered to cannabis concerns that are fully compliant okay. with their respective state laws. But full compliance is something that lawyers, I mean, that's now, now you're talking like the language of like right. lawyers in law school. Right. So how do you determine whether there's full compliance? That's really technical. And there's a lot of legal expertise that's going to be required there. And so the, kind of work that you can do and it's also it's sort of a you know it's the kind of client advising and transactional work that many people are drawn to in their legal Mm -hmm. career it's the reason why people go to silicon valley or did when i was in law school Mm. and uh you know um silicon alley in new york and and you know cambridge massachusetts and northern virginia it's because they want to be working with businesses um and a more proactive way than like doing mergers and acquisition work right right normally would would involve so it i mean the idea that you could unleash that kind of legal demand across the country and not just in these kind of you know um these tech clusters is also something that's potentially very exciting for the for law students for law schools for legal uh, profession as a whole. No, that's interesting. I think that's an entire other podcast, actually. That's a whole a whole other frontier of, of interest. Um, do you have anything else that you that we haven't brought up that you think uh, is kind of an interesting tidbit that ties into all of this? Um, 
No, I, so I am, um, I am hoping that the people who do this as a full-time job are not listening to this podcast because they will <laughs> be ashamed of my lack of command of the relevant terminology and acronyms and things like that. I've learned a lot from Doug Berman at Ohio State University and Rob Mikosh at um, at Vanderbilt. Uh, they're, in my opinion, the two sort of leading legal scholars of this industry. They they work in sort of different spaces. Doug's more in the criminal law space, mm-hmm. and and Rob's more in the um, the constitutional law and the regulation space. Although they both have expertise in, in both. And um, they've both been very generous to me in terms of helping correct my uh, really naive misimpressions about how the industry operates and how the law works and things like that. Well, you know, you talk about the terminology, and this is not a, a exactly a legal question. Uh, maybe this is more of a cultural perception, kind of ethereal question. But you know, in the in the course of this conversation, it's you've you've pointed out that you know the terminology in this industry has is really changing and i wonder how much the the terminology shift is playing into wider acceptance um you know there's a lot of stigma attached to uh you hear someone say smoking weed or you know like any of the any of the terms that we've all grown up with that are associated with marijuana there's a lot of stigma attached to all of those but you start um you you start using different phrases like you've talked about uh you know using cannabis in ter- in, in, in exchange and in, instead of saying you know marijuana weed or pot or anything like that cannabis is across the board you have different terminology for medical and recreational uses um different terminology for the market you know you you, you say marketplace you, you've got you know, vendors or dispensaries instead of, you know, dealers or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, things like that. So I don't know. I think that was that's something that's come out of our conversation is my, I just wonder, especially since, you know, a lot of the legislatures across different states that are dealing with this are, you know, a lot of times they're just old white guys who, have, you know, may be more conservative in nature some of the time. And, you start using different terminology that sounds a lot safer to your constituents that have a an older traditional bias against marijuana, then that thing doesn't sound so scary anymore. Um, starts to get put in boxes that sound more legalistic or business in nature, and it's a lot easier to move something across the board that doesn't scare your voting public uh, as much. Even though it's the same thing, different words matter. So, um, Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you look at the literature and the um, the materials that were used to drive federal prohibition, a lot of it was um, it was designed to cultivate fears Fear, of people right. in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the things that's really funny in um, in uh, criminal procedure cases. That, you know when, that I teach is that the Supreme Court it it's kind of inconsistent now it used to be pretty consistent but they would always spell the they would always use the term marijuana and they would spell it with an H because <laughs> that's how it was spelled and um I think not the Controlled Substance Act but um of 1970 but it might be I don't know um but it, in the tax stamp acts of the 1920s that's how they spelled it and um 
like basically it was like there are people coming up from Mexico that are giving you this that that are tempting our children you know in California and Texas and Arizona with these like this substance and we have to stop them and so the you know many of these terms are kind of marketing terms so mm -hmm, i think mm -hmm. people in the industry prefer the term adult use to recreational right um, and i think you know to a certain extent like because some people take ingest cannabis for like serious health risks you know saying oh well that's just recreational is, is pretty um that's a, you know it, it might be belittling the the mm -hmm. potential benefits of, of the substance mm -hmm. but the only one of these terms that i i don't insist on using it i don't correct people when they use it but i really and you know it's probably the most common term is i just don't use the term marijuana anymore i use mm -hmm. the term cannabis not because it's more precise because the thing is like there's a lot of different um, alcohol is pretty much the same chemical, right. um, but, you know, strains of cannabis differ a lot. So it's a more all encompassing term. Yeah. But I, it's not really that. Um, but it's more just to try to, to try to separate it from the relatively racist, yeah. you know, origins of prohibition. It kind of reminds you that um the story of cannabis prohibition in this country is not just a story of like there was some racism that happened 90 or 100 years ago and we're still living with it it's more complicated than that because it's a story about how bureaucracies work mm -hmm. and how people who are charged with regulating an industry oftentimes have an interest in the industry that is not purely regulatory, that it's kind of, there's a self-aggrandizing or self-serving aspect of the regulation. And um, I think if we didn't have these kind of bureaucratic incentives, the issue would be much easier to deal with. Um, uh, we would have been able to calculate the public health benefits and costs of prohibition a long time ago, and we would have been able to see a long time ago that it doesn't there's no real public health benefit through prohibition there are a lot of costs um in terms of racialized criminal justice mm -hmm. in terms of foregone tax revenue in terms of just um the mark of the criminal record right. for a lot of people that are probably not worth imposing and yet when you have people whose job it is to enforce these rules but not question whether the enforcement is worth doing. Um, that's a, a way that a policy that is not really serving anybody can persist and proliferate over a number of years. Right. Well, that's really interesting. I, 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 we, this conversation took like a really cool, interesting turn that I think uh, a lot of listeners probably, probably didn't expect at the beginning of this, but I think we've got some really interesting points that I hope people will pick up and kind of pursue on their own if they're interested. And like you said, uh, you, you're, you're fearful that somebody that uh, works full-time in this space may, may not, you don't want them to listen to this for fear of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of how you may not be as, as informed of a take as they are. But I think that, uh, the stuff that we've talked about really will pique a lot of people's interest and make them look into the issue, uh, or the various issues we've touched on. 
um, a little bit more on their own, which I think is kind of the goal. I like to have this as a conversation driver and an an interest, uh, an interest point to begin at. Well, I, yeah, I I appreciate your um, enthusiasm about it. I, I, I think there's a lot of really interesting things to say about it. I just worry that I'm not, you know, I, I don't say anything that's too ignorant. No, so well, I, you're I, I no. You're... We can get that balance of interesting and, and ignorance. Uh, and, and the right, <laughs> that's the, that's my goal in everyday life is to, to right. be yeah to have that cross section hit. But well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk. Um, maybe we'll have some chances to to discuss uh, some stuff in the future. As I think we've covered here, this is kind of a a, a, a ongoing, rapidly evolving topic. And if if nothing else, anyone that's listened to this can come away with the fact that um, these issues about uh, the legalization and, of, and regulation of cannabis, it touches a lot more areas than I think most people realize. And, you know, um, whether or not you, you have an interest, like you said, in, in criminal law, uh, in, you know, the justice system, the constitutional bank, bank, I mean, I, banking law, taxation constitution like the overlap law, constitutional right. law yeah tax agricultural law, law you know bankruptcy law yeah, yeah there's a ton of different areas that and i i think that that's something that has kind of struck me um and it and it's moving and evolving and like you said the the potential for it to be a a, a wave upon the legal industry in the the next decade is is really interesting to me as well so thanks for taking the time today yeah my pleasure all right Thank you.